0: We are in Matthew chapter 22 today. We're going to be going through 15 through 40. And uh, I want to talk to you about coffee today. And this is sort of near and dear to my heart because as some of you've known, uh, you know, I have, I've shared because I like to just share random things with people who don't care, uh, that I've stopped drinking coffee. Um, and, uh, you know, but when I drank it, I love to prepare real coffee. That's defined by you grinding your own beans. Yeah, I'm one of those guys, right? With the grinder, and you can just smell the freshly ground beans, and it's just so good. And then you you use some purified water, right, out of the fridge, filtered if you've got the RO or whatever. And and so you get good cold water, and and you brew it up. And however you choose to do it, French press, you know, just a a regular drip or whatever. And, And you have this just great aromatic thing, that is just so amazing in front of you, and you take that first sip, and there's nothing like it. I mean, it's really good stuff. I love coffee, and I'm going to start again right after the service. Okay? Um, but I would go out to coffee shops, and I would go out with friends, and, and you know maybe go with J- Pastor Jonathan sometimes, or some other pastor friends, and we'd go to these coffee shops, and you walk in the door, and there's like this huge menu, and there's things on it. Like, you can get a, a mocha frappuccino something or a java chip whatever or something 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 with these big italian names and all i know is what what's delivered looks like a milkshake or something like that so it's there's coffee in there i think i'm not certain about that but it's it's like there's there's coffee sorta of things right but just to go in and order a cup and i've done this before i walked in i just want a cup of black coffee and they're like what what is wrong what i, I don't do we make that you know and that type of conversation but Let's just think about this for a minute. So we have these, this variety of things that we think are coffee. But what we've done is we've added all of these concoctions to it, creams and fillers and flavors and spices. And we've diluted what coffee actually is. Well, our faith is like that as well. Do we really love our faith? Or do we have to add things to it to make it palatable to us? I want us to think about that today as we walk through this text. Now, we're taking a huge section of Scripture, uh, Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 40. Normally, you see this preached in, in smaller sections, but I don't want us to lose the unity of this text because we're really in one large section in which, in Matthew, where everything comes in threes. We've just had three parables in which Jesus has show, shown the problem with the authority that the Pharisees and the council think they have. And now we're looking at three responses or three tests and trials from his opponents that tried to entrap and ensnare Jesus. All of this is interrelated. And it goes back to the original conversation in Matthew 21, verses 23 through 27. The discussion about authority. So, as we dive into this text today, we do need to keep in mind what's going on. At the end of the day, Jesus is already told The religious council, their representatives, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, hey, look, you have failed in the mission. And because you failed, God is going to take your mission from you. and He's going to give it to fruitful people. So this is the discussion we've seen throughout the parables. Now, Matthew is going to write and engage in the text today. He wrote this to an original audience. And what's going on is there's been some Jewish background believers gathering in and around Israel, perhaps in the Mediterranean world, and they've just experienced this traumatic event. What happened is they lost the temple and they lost Jerusalem, probably in the very recent past. And as people from the Jewish faith, this is devastating to them. And so as he's pinning the Gospel of Matthew to them, he wants them to focus. Look, you have lost something that was temporary anyways. It was not meant to last. That's not the real Jerusalem. That is not the real temple. You are the real temple. And we're going to see the real Jerusalem. Go and serve God. Don't get distracted by these things that are going on. And so that's Matthew's intent. Inside of the text, we have these opponents of Jesus Christ the scribes and the Pharisees, and they are desperate to entrap him. They want to discredit him. They want to do whatever they can to get him out of the way because he is causing problems. He's detracting from their authority, and they don't like it. And so we have this verbal version of an Old West shootout going on. And we're going to dive into the text today, and we're going to get after it and look at the first section here. Let's look at verses 15 through 22. And as we engage with this section, I want you to think about pretenders. Because he's repeatedly called his opponent, Jesus has repeatedly called his opponents pretenders, hypocrites. And hypocrites or pretenders like to confuse sources of authority. Verses 15 through 22 say, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they, they marveled and they left him and went away. So what is going on here? The Pharisees and the scribes got together and they took some of their disciples and they got together with these guys called the Herodians, this, this other sect. And they said, look, go and test Jesus. What we want to do here is we want to try to ensnare him in either treason or we want, to, we want him to, to side with the Roman authorities and we want the people then to reject him. So there's this tension and they're going after treason. They think they're going to get Jesus in treason. That's what the heart behind this question is. And what is happening is in this culture, in this time period, about 25 years before this, but really it's been ongoing for, for decades, is there's a, this undercurrent of rebellion by the Jews against Rome. The 25 years prior to this, a man named Judas, another Galilean, came onto the scene, and he led a rebellion against Rome, and it was unsuccessful, and he was crushed, and all of his followers were crushed with him. However, what arose out of that movement was this, this political um, kind of party called the Zealots, one of which is an apostle of Jesus Christ. One of his apostles, one of those that he chose, his disciples, is a zealot. And they, as a as a... As a group of people, as a political party, they thought, well, you cannot be loyal to both God and a human government. It's impossible. And so this undercurrent, this thought of not being able to be loyal to God and a human government sort of flourished. Everybody liked that. They, they didn't want to be a, a radical uh, political party. They didn't want to be terrorists. But they, they understood and embraced the idea that, hey, we can't love God and this Caesar. And so paying this tax is unpatriotic. And so this question is completely loaded as they present it to Jesus. Are you going to be at odds with the Roman authorities, and we know what they do to people who oppose them, or are you going to say, okay, let's obey Rome and then disassociate yourself from the people? And as they ask this question, they, they use flattery. They use a lot of flowery languages. They, they say, you are true. You teach the word of God faithfully. You're, you're not swayed by the court of public opinion. And all of that, even though they mean it facetiously, even though they're just trying to flatter him, it turns out that it's actually true, right? Jesus is true. Jesus does teach the word of God truthfully. It's his Father's word. He is the word incarnate. And no, he is not swayed by the court of public opinion. So even though they didn't truly mean it, they spoke truth. And so the trap is now set. Let's try to get Jesus to side either with Rome or the people, and we'll get him either way. And so Jesus asked for a coin. He wants a silver denarius. Now, what's interesting is what's on this coin. And Jesus had a specific reason for asking for this coin from them. On the coin itself, we have a relief, an icon, of Caesar. And it's going to be the side of his face with kind of this laurel on it, and there's going to be an inscription. And on the inscription is his name and then a statement that says, Son of God. So as he's holding up this coin and showing it to the crowd who's also watching... And those religious authorities that were engaging him, he has this this example. And on this coin is is a picture of Caesar. On this coin it says he is the son of God, yes, but it's obviously printed by him. It's distributed by him. And so as he looks at the coin and he considers where he received it from, from the council, and, and as he thinks about what it says, then he answers their question directly. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. This is a direct response. What should you do about the tax? Give to Caesar, holding this coin, what is Caesar's. Now, why is this now not a controversial thing to him to say, knowing the historical context? Well, obviously this coin was printed by Caesar himself. And this is his money. And he's now given it to the Roman citizens or the Roman subjects so that they can participate in the culture and the economy and the benefits of Roman governance. This is Caesar's coin. So then, since it's Caesar's coin and it's been given to you for a while, when he asks for it, just give it back to him. It's not, it's not a part of us anyways. Just give it to him. So this completely undercuts their question. Jesus didn't have the coin, did he? He had to ask for one. So this is not even something that he's, that's his. I'm sure it, we don't see it in the text, but he gives it back to him probably, right? He doesn't want that. This is not his coin. This is Caesar's coin. So As he's considering, as as we consider, the question of authority in the text, Jesus has now demonstrated great wisdom in trying to diffuse this debate between can you be loyal to God and loyal to a human king, a human government. Of course, God ordains governments, right? He's the one who sets the length and rule of kings and governments, not man. And so thus, everyone is under God's authority. And as God gives authority to governments and to kings, and and they do things like print money for us to use, we participate. This is not a controversial statement for us today, but for the readers of the first text and for those participating, this would have been revolutionary. So Matthew now, remember, he's trying to show us this contrast from these three parables. What was the first parable? In the first parable, we had two sons. And one son tells his dad as he's asked to go work in the field, no, I won't do it. But then he goes and he works in the field and he produces fruit. And then the second son is asked the same question and he says, yes, dad, I'll go. And then he goes back to his couch or goes fishing or whatever. But he doesn't go and obey his father and produce fruit. Jesus now in engaging in this way with this council, with, with the disciples of the Pharisees, with the Herodians, is showing the same thing again. You see, he responded to a question that wasn't asked The response to the question that wasn't asked is this, give to God the things that are God's. Did they ask that question? No, they did not. But going all the way back to this parable and the idea of obedience, the idea of who truly obeys God, it's those who give to God what is God's. We are God's. If we are in Christ and we are his people, we belong to him. Thus, we obey him. We follow his word. We do the things that he commands us to do. Was the council doing that? Were the priests doing that? Absolutely not. In fact, they were robbing God. And the idea here, as Jesus holds this coin, and he challenges them and says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. The implication is they are not giving to God what is God's. And that is the issue. You see, the pretenders in front of Jesus are trying to confuse things. They're bringing up this human authority in an attempt to obfuscate the authority of Jesus Christ. And pretenders always do that. Today, it looks like competing priorities for us in our faith walk. We like to confuse things, too, when we're disobedient. You see, if we don't want to live under God's authority, we will find a way to make it confusing. We will pick and choose what to believe and obey from the Word. We will start to redefine clear terms. Truly, it is treason when we try to confuse God's authority. So, what do I mean by this? Let me give you a couple of examples of pretend obedience versus real obedience. And the first would be this you are, you are obedient in that you love the word, you love to read the word. You love it so much, you like to put um, you know, Instagram posts of scriptures. You have those, you have those, those nice printed uh, signs around your house that are framed. You have, you have the woodwork scriptures up on your walls. You, you like to go to Bible studies with your friends. I mean, you really, truly enjoy God's Word. But what about when it comes to sharing your faith? Do you do that? Do you follow that command? Do you love the Word in the sense that you just want to read it and ingest it? Or do you want to share it? You see, that is pretending, because we're called to share our faith. It's a command. It's, it's an expectation. It's a demand from a holy God upon his people. Talk about me. Do we do that? You see, that is a form of pretending. What else? Well, think about this. You are a husband and you are a provider for your family and you are a godly man. You lead a family devotional, right? You pray. You show up in, in Sunday school. You, you're there with your kids on Sunday morning, but you have a very demanding job. It takes a lot away from you. And over seasons in your life, you learn that, you know what, I I like my job. I mean, it it gives me a lot of fulfillment. I have power. I have authority. When I go home, things are messy. You know, I've got four kids. Some of them, you know, they get jelly on the carpet. They make messes. They break things. Uh, I have to deal with fights among siblings. I'm just going to let my wife handle more of that. I'm going to do more of the work thing and let her handle more of the home thing. And after a decade goes by, you are a non-present father. Now, you're doing a good thing, right? You're wrapping yourself in this pretend faith where provision is what you do and managing the home and raising the kids is what your wife does. Is that what God intended? Do you remember Deuteronomy chapter 6? See, both parents parent. Both parents are engaged. Both parents can provide. Both parents disciple their children. But when you cut off half of your faith and you say, I'm not going to do this part. I'm going to abdicate my responsibilities as a father. That is a form of pretending. You take away from time, from your family. What about bitterness? Bitterness today is probably one of the cultural markers of the last five years. But particularly the last 12 to 14 months. Bitterness has been, instead of something we should reject, it seems like amongst cultural Christianity in America today, bitterness has become one of the fruits of the Spirit almost. When I look at the opposition, people who oppose me, instead of looking at them as an image bearer of God, instead of looking at them as someone who's in sin and needs repentance, needs faith, needs love to be shown to them, we just look at them as evil. We reject them. Don't, don't, Don't talk to me. I don't want to listen to you. Just go away. In fact, you're only worthy of hell. When we hang on to bitterness, that's what comes out of us. And unfortunately, many Christians have done that. Bitterness is something that we reject. Every single one of us is deserving of hell. Our opponents, those who are on some other side of an ideological argument, are no more worthy of hell than I am or you are. They are sinners in need of the gospel, in need of redemption and reconciliation with God. We should not let bitterness taint how we view other people. We should reject bitterness in all its forms. So we know what obedience is. We know, we claim to be one of God's people, that we should do what he commands to do. But when we don't do that, when we reject his word when we reject obeying him and we try to confuse our faith we are pretenders we are stealing from god instead of giving back to him what is his so that's just the first scene we have pretenders trying to steal from god they are stealing from god and jesus calls them on it let's look at the second scene verses 23 through 33 and let's remember that pretenders are spiritual but not truly faithful verses 20 verse 23 says The same day Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. They asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crown heard it, heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So in walked the Sadducees. Here's the second member of the gunfight. Okay, let me take you back to that gunfight picture. You have, you have this, this Texas Ranger, right? Lean, eagle-eyed, you know. He's wearing a star, the shiny star, kind of wearing the white hat, but it's sweat-stained. You know, little, It's got red Texas dust on it. He's on one end, one in the street. On the other end, there's the three like mean, old, just hired guns sitting to take this ranger down. And Jesus just plugged the first one, the Herodians and the disciples of the Pharisees. Here's the second. They think they're pretty tough. They think they're pretty fast. And they come after him with a spiritual argument. Now, the Sadducees are rich, and powerful. They're connected to the priesthood. They would be people that you would want to associate with. You would want them in your church because they're probably going to give a lot. They may not have all the money, but they control access to it. They do not believe, the, the Sadducees, in the resurrection. Why? Because they hold exclusively to the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and they discounted anything else to include Psalms and the Prophets. And the problem for them is they don't see, in their viewpoint, the way they interpret things, they don't see an explicit bodily resurrection in the Pentateuch. And since they don't look at texts like Psalms or Daniel or Job, which which help us anticipate the resurrection, which help us explain it and get our minds around it, they don't believe in it. Not there, not going to believe it, not a part of our philosophy well, let's look at what Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 26 says, and see if this would have helped them in their search for the resurrection. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Let me read that again for us. Job nineteen, twenty-five through twenty-six. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Many of us know this passage. We love it. We've heard songs sung about it. It clearly points to a bodily, physical resurrection. And this is just one of numerous passages we can walk through. The trap that the the Sadducees tried to set for Jesus Christ was from the law itself, and it's about leveret marriage. And what that is, is the practice of producing an heir for your deceased brother if he dies before an heir is born. And it's an important concept and practice from the Old Testament, especially during a time in which there were no social safety nets. The practice gives future hope and practical provision. Now, spiritually, if you were a a, a part of of Israel, the family of Israel, the nation of Israel, this meant that if you died without an heir, that your family because of your brother, because of him fulfilling this, this levirate duty, your family would still stand in service before the living God of Israel. This is huge. Don't miss that. This is something that you would, you would fret about if you didn't have an heir. So it is a really big deal. Now, as the Sadducees looked at this practice, they thought, well, this is an argument. This is a logical argument against the resurrection. And so they create this question for Jesus. And they say, okay, Jesus, if seven guys are all married to the same woman and then they all die and there's no heirs, whose wife is she in the resurrection? It's unanswerable, Jesus. Obviously, there is no resurrection. That's their thought process. They're very arrogant when they ask this question. They're very condescending as well. The objective for them is, is to, to alienate Jesus because this argument has been ongoing. This is not just something where they're, they're bringing up for the first time. This is another cultural argument they're bringing before Jesus Christ. There were followers of the Sadducees. There were followers of the Pharisees who did believe in a resurrection. And what they're trying to do is trying to get Jesus to pick a side. And now we can split the crowd in half and we can incite the half against him to go after him. Like This is how we'll do it because this, there's no way he beats this argument. And yet, what does Jesus do? He does not mince words in his response. He says, You are wrong. I mean, you're wrong. You're wrong. Mic drop. I'm going to walk away now. Right? But then he, he goes on and he explains it. He goes, It's very clear you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, think about the implication. He's speaking to the representatives, possibly some of the high priests themselves. These are the guys that lead Israel in worship. If anyone knows the Bible, it should be these men. And what does Jesus accuse them of? You know neither the scriptures. You do not know what you claim to know, but you also do not know the power of God. The power of God. They don't know what God's word says. Yes, they can quote it, but they don't know it. It doesn't know them. From the inside out, there is no living knowledge of God's word. In fact, what they have done is they have warped it and perverted it. That's what pretenders do. Through spiritualism, they've created this sort of shadow of God's word that they adhere to and that they follow. This is cultural legalistic spiritualism. That's what the Sadducees follow. The spiritualism in itself is, is a philosophy. It's a philosophy to explain things that transcend our normal human understanding and experience. And what is legalism? Legalism is what we might call today moralism. But it, it's faith in moralism. It's saying that I'm going to be saved by a moral action, not by any personal faith in anything. So Jesus here defines personal faith for them by saying the power of God. But what power of God is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the resurrection power of God. Now, it's the power that Job had faith in. It's the the power that will bring Jesus Christ back to life. It's the power that's in you. The resurrection power of God is in you if you believe in the sinless life of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, his sinless life, his death on the cross, his resurrection in the flesh, and you have repented and believed. Then you have the resurrection power in you. This is what Jesus is talking about. Now, is the bodily resurrection real? Let's just deal with this briefly. Because normally, if you're going to preach this alone, you would talk a lot about this here. But we've already addressed one example back in Job, the Old Testament. Job obviously believed in a bodily, physical resurrection, and he believed in a Redeemer, right? We can see that from the text. But just in Matthew, we've seen it as well. Matthew chapter 17. The Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is up on this mountain. His glory is unveiled. And there are two men standing there with him physically present. Moses and Elijah. They're there too. Peter sees them. They're walking around. They're talking. They're having a conversation. So, So we see that from Matthew 17. But the greater example, obviously, that we have faith in is Jesus Christ himself. After he dies on the cross for our sins, he rises again in the flesh. But that's not all he does, right? He walks around, he eats some fish, he touches people, he talks to them, he prepares a meal for his disciples. You gotta have a physical body for all of that. Jesus himself is the proof of a physical bodily resurrection. Because we see in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, John affirmed this. He says, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So we're going to be like Jesus, what he is. Someday I'm going to be able to just appear in a room. and It's going to be great. I wish I could do that now and catch my kids, right? Okay, someday locked doors aren't going to matter to me. Like someday, all of this is going to be true, right? We're going to be like Jesus. So not only are we going to be resurrected in the flesh, but it's going to be a hundred times better than what we have now. But Jesus goes on and he explains this concept further. The resurrection is real and reality will be fundamentally different. Yes, a part of that reality means marriage will no longer be a thing, but the love remains. As we continued on, if we could go through 1 John, we would see that love is going to be critical. It's going to be central. It's central now to who we are in Christ, and it will be central to who we are in Christ in the resurrection so we will have a greater reality. We will not have less life. We will have more life. We will have life more abundant. So, what does spiritualism look like today as we try to rebel against God? You see, spiritualism masks our rebellion. When it's when we can we can participate in smooth-sounding theories, it's when we can we can put catchy phrases on things, it's when we we take part in things that sound biblical but aren't biblical, right? There's there's a Bible present, but it's not opened. That's spiritualism, We have to be very careful about that. This word is open before you, and this is between us, because this is what I'm all about. And this is what you are all about as a church. If if I say anything that's not in here, stop listening, right? This is what we talk about. Spiritualism is when we close it. And we have it present, so we have this fake authority, right? We're pretending like God's Word is governing what we do, but it's not actually governing what we do. What does spiritualism, what's the form it takes today? There's many. There's many, many forms. But it's basically human philosophy that trumps the, God, the Word of God. Something that sounds good, but is just missing something, right? Well, today we can look at the health, wealth, prosperity gospel movement the word of faith movement, the name it and claim it movement. It's one of the greatest expressions of spiritualism in our day. It's where we take a part of the word and we take it out of context, we divorce it from the Bible, and we try to act like we can do things with this piece of God's word. We can do things with our faith, sort of like a Jedi Knight can move things around a room, right? That's what it is. That's what the word of faith movement is. You can name it, you can claim it. And this mostly revolves around personal wealth and success. You see, you never see anyone in the Word of Faith movement taking Matthew chapter 10 and 11, or chapter five verses 10 and 11, and saying, "Make this true for me." right? What, what does that say? Matthew chapter five verses 10 and, uh, 11 and 12 says, "Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad." for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. You don't see word of faith pastors, you don't see word of faith adherents taking that text and saying, I want to rejoice and be glad today, Jesus. Please have someone persecute me. Suffering is a real problem for spiritual people because when spiritual people encounter suffering, they have no response. It must mean that I'm evil or that I have sinned. When that couldn't be further from the truth. If you're suffering from your faith, be glad. Rejoice, because it's proof, it's affirmation that you are in Christ and He is in you. We just got done studying, studying the letter of James. In James chapter one, verses three through five, we see the idea that trials for our faith make us perfect and complete. Not only do they make us perfect and complete, but they enable us to then serve God the way He desires. Trials, suffering. It has a purpose. In God's kingdom for us right now, and it makes us complete. But spiritual people don't believe that. If we follow the logic of the Pharisees, we will hold to our human philosophy and we will reject God's wisdom. If we lapse into spiritualism, we will focus on our wants, our desires, and our emotions instead of the word of the living God. The Sadducees' question is moot. It's invalid. It has no legal standing. The God of the covenant is radically engaged in our lives into eternity. We're being transformed into something we will not recognize, but in the best possible way. In the resurrection, we will perfectly worship God. Just like the parable of the wicked tenants, the second parable, the Sadducees misuse the law. They misuse what God gave them to minister, and so God is taking it from them. They refuse to give glory back to God, so God is going to take it and give it to others so that they produce fruit for him. Now, that's two of the gunfighters down. We have the final one approaching him now, and they think they're the best. They think they are the sharpest shooters in the land, and they are going to take down Jesus. Everyone else was second team. Now the A-team shows up. Let's look at verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them said, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the Pharisees failed with their disciples and the Herodians, right? They couldn't take them down for treason. The Sadducees fail with logic and spiritualism. So the Pharisees and the scribes come and they make one more pass, and they're going to aim for the heart of the law itself. In the, the Old Testament, there are about 613 laws by the count of the Pharisees and the scribes. And an ongoing kind of a, a social media debate, if you will, would be which of these is the best, which of these is the greatest, which are light, which are heavy, which are primary, and which are secondary. And it was a great pastime for them. They would debate about this all day for years. They would write books about it and exchange these views and papers with each other. This was a topic of debate. Now, Jesus has already explained to his opponents and the watching crowd, because keep in mind, as Jesus is having this debate, there are others watching. He's already explained to them, look, You are not giving to God what is God's. And you do not know the scriptures and you do not know the resurrection power of God. Matthew is clear here. He wants us to understand the heart of the question is not information seeking. This is testing is how he puts it. This is temptation. Now, who else has tempted Jesus in scripture? Satan. And again, the intent is to trap Jesus in his own words and to break his support. And Jesus responds to them very simply, love God and love others. There's a first and primary command, love God. And then there's a secondary command that you have to have with the first, love others. If you don't have both, then you miss the heart of the law and you miss the heart of God. Let me read the two quotations from Jesus. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, the Shema, the great prayer of Israel. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your strength, and with all your might. The wholehearted love of God is to be met with the wholehearted love of his people. That's what the first one means. And he also quotes Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 through 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We don't participate in hating our neighbors. Hate's not a part of the covenant community of faith. Both passages have been quoted by others throughout, Jews, uh, throughout Jewish history to defend the law or to, to show which is greater. Jesus is the very first one ever to put these together, though. What you read in this text and in this conversation was radical and earth-shaking. They had never heard it before. This would have rocked their world completely. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I love God, but then I express my love for God by loving people? This is a radical concept for the first hearers and for the first readers. But yet this is the heart of God and this is true worship. We love God and we love others and we love God by loving others. Jesus told his opponents they are pretenders and that they fail to give God what is due him and that they do not know the scriptures, they don't know the resurrection power, and here's the core problem, they don't really love God. And because they don't love God, they don't love others. What they love is power. Now Jesus is going to talk more about this in chapter 23. But if we desire to love God as he requires then what, mo- what matters most to us is a loving relationship with God that shows total devotion expressed in how we treat others. Let me say that again. If we desire to love God as He requires of us, then what matters most is a loving relationship with God that shows total devotion expressed in how we treat other people, other humans, your church family, your neighbors, your co-workers, your fellow students, those in this community, those you interact with. Now, unsurprisingly, Jesus has already addressed this issue one time. Love God, love others. He's he's talked about it before. And of course, he built the entire introduction to his sermon around it, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. He showed us how the first Beatitudes, being poor in spirit, mourning, and meekness, they address the response to the first part of the law, how we love God. And then we have this pivot point. We have um, pursuing righteousness that's external to us and it corresponds to the Sabbath because the Sabbath is about rest and who do we rest in? We rest in Christ. Obeying Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. And then we see in the second half of the Beatitudes how we pursue mercy and integrity and peacemaking. And that helps us then live out the second half of the table of the law. Jesus in many ways, this is the entire central point of the Gospel of Matthew. How you live out the kingdom character and the kingdom ethic. And to close out his, his scene here, Jesus is saying, look, you just have not done it. You have failed on all counts, religious people. You are complete pretenders. There is no love in you for God or for others. Now, Jesus has already pointed out their predatory behavior. Back in chapter 15, He shows how the Pharisees and the scribes used the law to take advantage of their own parents. Yet, this is the people who claim to represent the God of Israel. It's not so. Our faith is not about power and control, our faith is about obedience, and we love God through Christ by loving other people. That's what we do as the church. People are our mission, they are not the problem. People are not targets. They are those we go to and show compassion and love. As we conclude our time today, God wants his people to love him by loving other people. And that means, first and foremost, about sharing the gospel with others and discipling those who come to faith. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 and Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 through 18 are radical displays of love. However, Jesus Christ himself personified the radical display of love of God. He did it for us. He climbed up on a cross and showed us what love looks like. And by dying on the cross for our sins and rising again in the faith, he gave us the ultimate example. And we go and we tell other people about it and we say, you should respond. You need to repent and believe. Christ's work defines love for us. Now, Jesus is speaking here clearly against cold, dead religion. He's speaking against spiritualism. That, that's that, remember, it's discounted from the Word of God, but it's spiritual activity. It's something we think transcends us, but yet it's not anchored to the Word. He's speaking against that clearly. What he wants us to do is to hold to the Word of God, to go back to the Word and to dive in, and then to obey it, to know the resurrection power to share it with others. He wants us to reject a self-centered faith and to focus on a Christ-centered faith. God's power is expressed as radical love through his people to each other and to a watching world. And our big idea today is this. Obeying God and loving people means that we lay down our cold dead religion and take up faith in Christ. Every head bowed, every eye closed, and no one looking around. Believer, I want to talk you through a response today. Jesus has faced down three opponents, and he's taken them all down. The commonality amongst all three of them is that they're pretenders. And so my question to you today is, are you a pretender or are you faith-filled? Has your faith been about you? Is it about your power, your privilege, your philosophy, your opportunities, your favorite religious activities? If that's true, then you might be a pretender instead of faith-filled. If you have lapsed into pretending, ask God to reorient your heart towards him and towards others and embrace the whole of his word. Embrace all of his commands. Submit to him completely in every way and stop withholding from God what is God's. If you're in this room and you have never trusted Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior, you're not pretending, you're just not His. And the risk to you today is this, that you will fall prey to this authority issue. You'll fall prey to spiritualism. You'll fall prey to a faith that looks okay to you because it withholds a little bit for you and gives some to God. All of this is just a spiritual abuse of power clothed in faith. And it's not real, it won't save you. The only thing that will save you is to reject all the human means, the false human means of salvation, and to choose Christ alone. You put your faith and trust in his life, his sinless life, his death on the cross for your sins and my sins, and his resurrection in the flesh. And then you admit that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. You repent and you believe in Jesus Christ. If you've never done that today, I would encourage you to do that. This altar is open to you today to respond in any way the Lord burdens your heart. You can come forward and pray during this time. I'm available to pray with you. If you want to talk to me about baptism, about salvation, or anything that's burdening you, I'd be happy to talk to you today. I'm going to pray and you respond however the Lord leads.